Greetings, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades. Happy Abstinence from Meat Friday. That is 52 Fridays a year. I am here with a most special show today during the midst of what I've called Conversion or Reversion Week. Uh, a couple days ago, I interviewed uh, Elliot Hulse, and that was really interesting. Today, I'm super excited to interview uh, a special, special, special guest and her husband. So I'd like to, to say hello to a new RCIA uh, sis, Caitlin Bennett and Justin Moldau. What's up, guys? Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for bringing us on, Tam. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's genuinely exciting. You guys are going through a lot. Uh, Caitlin, you just came into the church. You also just announced that you're pregnant, which is super cool. How long have you guys been married? Over a year now. So about a year and a half married on the feast of St. Joseph, March 19th. Beautiful. That, that is particularly apropos the feast of St. Joseph. I've been talking about him a lot lately. Uh, again, the end of conversion reversion week will be uh, my friend Milo Yiannopoulos on Tuesday. And boy, these are, these are some great guests talking about the role either tacitly or explicitly that St. Joseph had. So parish orphans and retrogrades, I'm excited to bring you, uh, um, John and Kate plus eight, <laughs> Justin and Kate, <laughs> Justin and Kate plus me. So yeah, this, this announcement, uh, I'm going to go to Caitlin first, really, really good stuff. Your video was really, really informative. What I appreciated about it that I just want to throw out there first is specifics. Specifics are better than gushing. Hey, I'm excited to be Catholic. Like I like the format. The format was not just meaningless organization. Uh, the way you formatted the video where you announced, hey, guys, I'm no longer an atheist. You're actually talking about the way that you puzzled this out. And I, I'd like to ask you some questions on that today. But, but first off, I'd just like to say thanks for that video. It was really great. And the format was particularly compelling. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, like the most grippy thing from the first part of your video is that you mentioned that you became an atheist out of fear of the truth of Christ, which, which one doesn't hear too often. About the same age, I think I started going agnostic because I was growing up. I'm, I'm older than you guys, obviously. In the 80s and 90s church, it was just Susan from the parish council running everything. It pretty much still is today. But I was like, wow, what if I'm wrong about all this what if this is basically santa claus part two and all these adults have just entered some sort of social compact to delude themselves and I, it really wasn't until i was almost 30 that i reverted to the church you kind of had some of the same thoughts but going in the opposite way you became an atheist maybe you can tell if, it, if it's for the same reasons or not and then you were double guessing your atheism what if i'm wrong along the way would you tell us a little bit about that yeah. So like I said, in the video, I was literally about the age of 12 and I was like, none of this makes sense. The stories in the Bible, there's no way this is true. My, um, my family members would actually tell me that the Bible's the Bible isn't true. And a lot of it isn't true and, and all this stuff and that we don't need church and church is just something else that you can go to, but you don't really need it. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, if all of these things are not true, then how is the premise of it true? And it really, really bothered me 
a lot being a 12 year old, getting that information because I needed the adults in my life to establish the truth in me and tell me the truth so that I wouldn't go down this path. Unfortunately, that was not the case for me. So uh, eventually I just started rejecting everything. I was one of those cringy atheists that would be like, oh, well, the boat, the Noah's Ark wasn't even big enough to hold all those animals. And mm. this is so silly. And it was so cringy. And I, profound, I, would get, bro. <laughs> I would get so mad at people like sharing Bible quotes on Facebook. I'm like, this isn't a youth group, blah, blah, blah. Um, eventually, my brother told on me to my parents uh, for being an atheist. And they told me that uh, they basically threatened me with Bible study, that they were going to send me there to straighten me out. I wish they would have. They never followed through with their word. <laughs> but um, eventually, I just started not thinking about it. It bothered me so bad. And it, it gave me so much anxiety. I would lay awake at night, like panicking and sweating, like, oh my gosh, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? And I can't, I can't tell my followers these things because I'm so embarrassed of believing this. And like I said, in the video, the people who agreed with me on this topic were the worst people I've ever met. They treated me the worst out of anybody I've ever encountered. And I was like, this is, this can't be right. This, this cannot be the path that I'm supposed to be on. Um, so I just was like, fine, I'll go to church with you one day, Justin. And uh, I realized if I was that scared at night, thinking about these things, I probably was wrong. <laughs> yeah, all the appetites rightly ordered are good and natural according to Aquinas. Now, I, I, Justin, I want to bring it to you for a second. You actually, a lot of people don't know this. You're the founder of Liberty Hangout, and I followed your Twitter account for a couple years. Um, you're a cradle Catholic, right? And you you had yes, a hand sir. in all this too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, all glory goes to God. I don't want to say it was my doing or anything because I am a cradle Catholic, but I wasn't really, I, I, I want to say I wasn't really true to Catholicism up until probably about two years ago, because at the point in time when we started dating, the extent of my, uh, my faith was I would maybe pray at night if I remembered and read a chapter of the Bible. I wasn't attending mass, um, didn't believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. Um, I hadn't attended confession probably since CCD class uh, in like eighth or ninth grade. So I was very far removed um, from the Catholic faith. All the while, I still maintained that belief in God. And I maintained that someone must have been praying for us because there was a moment two years ago. Um, it was on September 8th of 2018 or 2019, rather. I remember the date very specifically that that's when I was called back to church and um, I believe September 8th is the Feast of the Nativity of Mary. It's Mary's birthday. And that's the day that I felt the call to go back to Mass. And I don't know why. I woke up one morning. I said to her, I want to I go to Mass today. And I was like, why? <laughs> <laughs> why? Why do you? I'm not going with you. Fine. You can go. And, and so I, I went to Mass that Sunday. And I remember the priest gave a really awful homily where he was <laughs> praising Greta Thunberg and saying how we had to be all, you know, pro-environmentalism and everything. And for some reason, you know, God still kept calling me back to mass each week, even after that experience, you know, 
was very blessed to understand, you know, even though that wasn't the best homily, this is still the place that I need to be every single week. And from there, um, it became a journey for the two of us very, very quickly. Oh, it's miraculous, isn't it? The, the overcoming, the overstepping of the presbyterate and the episcopate that one has to do to keep going to Roman Catholicism, to keep, you know, going to the, the source. And that's what we do every week. And it's 90% of the priests and probably 95% of the bishops. They're all doing their thing. <laughs> we won't get into that. And, and yet it's still the one true faith. It's, it's unbelievable. That makes it, Caitlin, quite a time for you to enter the church, right? The, the reign of number 266 and, you know, Francis the Humble as Time Magazine used to uh, have us believe. It's not really believable anymore. But what, what a time to come into the church, right? A time of crisis. We need all hands on deck. So in, in a weird way, it's the best time to come in, the church at its lowest. I'm having a lot thrown at me very quickly because usually I would imagine when people first convert to Catholicism, they only have a small group of friends that they talk about these things with. And there might be some pushback from Protestants or anti-Catholics, but being on a public scale, it's like, I'm so glad that I have gone through so much, you know, physical mobbing, but also internet mobbing, because at this point, I can withstand even the pressures from my own followers and the people who support and subscribe to me who are doing the exact same thing um, as all of these liberals who have hated me for years, you know, lying about the church. I won't say it's lying. They don't know what they're talking about, <laughs> I guess I, I would say. I don't think they're purposely lying. I think they've just been misinformed. Um, so I think all of that has kind of prepared me to be in this moment where I am right now to where I can look at this and I can accept that they're saying it. And then it leads me to ask more questions. So, uh, I mean, people have accused me of doing this for money. You do not go into the Catholic faith in America if you want to make money. Yeah, uh, yeah. As a, as you, that's <laughs> not something you do. Uh, instead, you just kind of go to, um, I'll leave it there. <laughs> I'll leave it there. <laughs> uh, Res ipsa loquitur. It, it's, it speaks for itself. Look, Catholics have always been the minority here. We've always been odd man out. The, you know, not, notwithstanding the majority we've usually enjoyed on Supreme Court, um, notwithstanding our inefficacy on the court to do anything Catholic. But yeah, it's, you wouldn't do that to people said the same thing to Milo when he came back to the faith. Look, I mean, he published, he published, I got it right here. My first book, Catholic Republic, when he was, it was giving a talk called the Catholic church is right about everything before he was back in the faith. I mean, when he, before he'd reverted. So it's, it's not that it's the opposite of an ulterior motive, which is the one you know, proper teleologically driven motive, which is truth. And uh, it's, it's self-evidently so. You don't go into the faith to line your pockets. You don't go teach the truth of the faith uh, informally or formally to line your pockets, uh, especially with your followers, which you mentioned in your video. I like this. You say that a lot of times you'd have, when you when you do your thing, which is hilarious, by the way, going to the <laughs> university campuses, trolling them all. Uh, excellent. You would announce your atheism to like mollify the mob, to quell the masses. 
that that's and and you felt bad about that later. Uh, it's got it carries a number of implications. None of them are good for anyone on the atheist side. That that's really interesting. Yeah. So that specific moment, I didn't go into details in my video because I wanted to keep it about what mattered. But I remember it was the very first time I had been mobbed. I had one giant security guard. The police refused to help me. I was getting burned with a. Uh, hot coffee on my skin and people were trying to literally like just <laughs> kill me uh and this guy was running after me and I was trying to leave campus and he was like you go around telling gay people they're sinners and they're going to hell and I just stop in my tracks and I look behind him and I'm like I'm an atheist I have never <laughs> said that and it's like he had a, a, a light on his face he was like you are you are an atheist? And I was like, yes, so leave me alone. You're lying about things that I believe in. He was like, I didn't know that. I'm so sorry. I, I, I didn't know. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is not, I don't want to be friends with you. Like, I don't want your sympathy. If that's what I had to say to get this person to leave me alone and get out of my face and stop trying to hurt me, that was not the place. That is not the answer that should have been given. That was not right. And ever since that moment, I'm sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, this can't, this cannot be the path that I'm supposed to be going down because it's dirty. It's, it's so dirty. And uh, that was one of the moments in my life where I was like, wow, okay, I might, I might seriously need to do some digging. Um, and I made sure to tell him, do not put that in the video because my microphone caught it. And I said, do not put that in there. Do not release that. I am so embarrassed. We'll pretend it didn't happen, but it's something I've always thought about. And I'm kind of glad the interaction happened. While it was embarrassing, it needed to happen for me to think about it. Yeah, the holy efficacy of shame, right? I mean, you you grew up in a moderately Protestant family, it sounds like. So you probably knew the story of like Peter denying Christ in front of the mob. Is that what, what was the force of the shame? No, I did not grow up in um, a household that talked about Christ, that talked about the Bible, the saints. I didn't even know what a saint was. And that's another part I was going to bring up later. Um, once I started asking these questions to Justin, I literally knew nothing. I knew, I did not know. This is how much I didn't know. And this is probably why it scared me so much as a young adult and a teenager. I didn't even know what the Trinity was. I did not know that. I did not know that God and Jesus were the same, but separate. And I didn't even know what the Holy Spirit was. I had no idea my church growing up that we went to a couple of times, uh, did communion with a tortilla wrap like a burrito and grape juice. And we would go down to the basement afterwards, the kids would, and we would finish the grape juice and the tortilla wrap. I love the people at my church. They're, my old church, they were great. And they send me a happy birthday card every year. Um, <laughs> but that was my experience. Yeah, basically like going to a, a taco, a really, really uh, COVID-19 resource depleted Taco Bell that had grape juice or something. <laughs> right. Yeah, like a like an extra cheap Taco Bell talk. What was, Justin, what was it like? Were you guys dating when she was doing all the, the college campus trolling and, and people were spilling hot coffee? I kind of like to get to this at the end. I'd like to talk to you guys about some secular stuff based off of what both your projects are. But were you dating at all when you'd see people treating your woman like this? 
Oh, yeah. And I guess to make a long story short, um, you know, it was me founding Liberty Hangout and already having a platform that allowed us the opportunity to go and start making videos together. Um, because before I met her, I'd be the one in front of the camera making videos about politics. And then, you know, she got over her nerves and anxieties like, I don't want to be on camera. But then she became a pro at it. And that's when we started doing the college campus visits or just interviewing people on the street. And so for me, as the cameraman, it was always an interesting experience because everything that you see in every single video of ours is from my personal uh, perspective. So when we were at these campuses and she was getting mobbed, that was a really defining moment for me, too. That was uh, a year after we had been engaged and our wedding was only about a month away. And I remember seeing all these students attacking her, throwing uh, objects at her, hurling insults, just really vile and nasty. And for me, I truly felt like I was witnessing the passion of the Christ in that moment. And um, every time I mention that, people are like, oh, you're comparing her to Jesus. This wasn't the passion of Christ. But we've even talked that with our uh, parish priest. And he said, yes, you know, if Christ truly lives in you, then in that experience, if she's a baptized Christian, that is reliving the experience of the passion. Because when the mob was, you know, coming after her, it was it, it was like I was seeing the mob say to Jesus, crucify him. And I think it was at that moment that I knew this, this is going to be a, a very defining moment in our lives that will change us for the better. I always tell them not to say that because people jump straight to, she's not Jesus. And I'm like, no, I'm not. We're not saying that at all. It's just the treatment of the things that I stand for. And I've always stood for more Christian beliefs and a Christian lifestyle. And I didn't even know it. There are, there are lots of Catholic trolls too, you, you know, doing what I do. I'm, I'm sure doing what you do, uh, both of you. And there's nothing worse than a Catholic purity spiral. You know, when people are like, you said you're Jesus. The thing to do is just be like, yes, I said I'm Jesus. That's what, <laughs> what are you talking about? Literally anyone that knows anything understands that all human suffering properly consecrated is uh, uh, unification to Christ on the cross. I mean, that's literally what it's called. We have prayer after prayer. Human suffering is unification to Christ on the cross. Now you have to take that moment and, you know, bestow the formal cause and say, I, I, you know, I'm giving this to Christ and I let me be unified to him on the cross. But with all due respect to your detractors, it sounds pretty gnarly. I mean, I, I really like to get into why were the cops? I want to stick with the Catholic stuff first, but real quick, why were the cops not helping? I think they simply, uh, well, there was a cop that came up to me and said, you're making these people block the road. You have to move. And I looked at him. I said, I'm one person. I can't do anything with a mob of 400 people. And he goes, well, you need to do something. And I said, can you take me somewhere where I will be safe away from these people? And he said, no, he smirked and he left. And when he left, the mob just got even more emboldened knowing that the cops weren't going to stop them. Uh, if you watch the, the whole video from OU, you can see the cops laughing. Uh, and then the cops came out and said, oh, there may have been some water splashed. We don't know, but it's not a big deal. And it's like, no, actually I burnt my skin. You know, it was coffee. Um, I think they were scared. I think they were scared because we see what happens with liberals and BLM supporters and cops. They didn't want to fight. They didn't want to have a riot on campus with the police versus students. 
Yeah, I think I, I tend to be, you know, charity and all things, but I, I have good reason to believe that with these cops that have bowed down before BLM over the last year and a half, which is really vile. I've seen it's anecdotal, but I've seen with my own eyes in DC at the first stop the steel rally before the January the sixth thing. I, I stayed away from that, but I was out there with a lot of other um, a lot of other folks, Catholic and, and non-Catholic conservatives. And the cops were turning people away. Literally, they turned one guy away. I didn't see this, but it happened like 15 minutes after I'd crossed the spot. Same cops. And I saw it on a video later once I, you know, I got, I got six kids and a wife. Um, We're just, we're doing the two mile walk back from Liberty Plaza to our RV. And I see uh, just once we get back to the RV right at that spot, Cops turning away a guy. It's like, look, this like BLM mob is bothering me. And the cops like, don't ask us, bro, or whatever they said to him. They turned him back out. He ended up getting beaten up. That is the stuff of like Dark Knight Rises. That's a Christopher Nolan film where the cops are in on it with the crooks. That's what's happened. It makes we'll push this to the end because you're you're saying Liberty Hangout has changed uh, ideological direction of travel some. Um, I'd, I'd like to suggest people need to go back to a more uh, liberty focused sort of mistrust of mistrust of, of government and government agents, but we'll, we'll kick that to the end. Um, it's it, it, that had to be hard to see though. And, and God bless you guys and, and keep you both, keep you both safe. You don't do the campus stuff anymore. Do you Caitlin? No, ever since I um, got pregnant, we decided that that part of my life was behind me. It wasn't worth um, the last campus I went to when we had to have a police escort take me off campus. Six security um, guards. Six security guards. And it's just it's not worth uh, someone trying to hit my belly uh, while I'm pregnant. You know that they would try. My security guards have had to literally take people that are about to hit me with skateboards, pick them up and just throw them away from me. One of the best things I've ever seen. <laughs> Shout out to my security guard, Jake. Uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of where we are. So we're just going to we're going to move on from that. While it was really fun and I'm really going to miss it. It's it's a new chapter. It, it's time to put that to rest. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I, I want to ask you about abortion in a second, but I have a my, my my next book that will be out in August of 2022 is uh, my fourth book. I'm co-authoring with Dr. Michael Robillard. And both of us are, you know, trained, trained academic philosophers. He's an ex-Army Ranger, West Point guy, uh, you know, 88th Airborne. Um, very tough dude. We're both big guys. And the book is going to be called Don't Go to College. And what? And it's going to yeah. be on Regnery. And the thing that sold Regnery on this book, they're like, we don't want to really do an education book. They asked me for a book. And I'm like, I want to do this book with my buddy, Dr. Michael Robillard the academic tough guy philosopher they're like yeah education book that ain't gonna sell so well and then i'm like wait i had a meeting with all of the heads of regnery all, all six of the most powerful people i go i'm gonna change your mind tomorrow when i came in i was like this ain't an education book this is a revolution book right this is a burn it down and salt the earth book and they're all like okay we're doing this book and i was yeah. like and then the other thing is that the other thing i told them right before they said that is i'm like so we write this book and as it's debuting uh me and Mike do a don't go to college, college speaking tour. 
and we start at some of the biggest places and we get like a sign-up list and we tell students like come away from college with us like we'll lead a procession through the campus and it kids will joyfully skip to their freedom where they're no longer indoctrined by the gods of of uh pornea and uh you know dionysian orgiastic energy whatever it is and and they're charged hundreds of thousands of dollars to do it but <laughs> so we're we're going to we're going to deal with some of those little blue-haired skateboard freaks too but but uh I look forward to it's it it's rewarding i will say that it's very fun and rewarding but i thrive in confrontation so yeah. i assume you do too so you will love it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but when, amen amen to that but you're pregnant now and um that, that that's beggars an important point of departure for you which was even when you were an atheist according to your video caitlin you were always anti-abortion and this is something that like i don't know if it's just some touch point for people with half decent common sense or what but yeah even in all those years where i was kind of a low functioning agnostic almost atheist away from the church it was always like, well, obviously abortion's wrong. You can't go around killing babies. And that always, for me, was a call to, well, I can't be a full-on atheist because like Ivan Karamazov says, without God, anything is permitted. This intense intellectual and instinctual sense that we have, like you can't go around killing human beings. That has to be tethered to something at the end of the day. Atheists can't tether it to anything though. How did you work that out? So I majored in a biology degree. I have a bachelor's um, in a, a biology degree and I love science. I, instead of reading books, I would literally read my genetics tech textbook. I would read my evolution textbook. I love science. And from a science perspective, it was always common sense to me that this has been a child, a human being from the moment of conception. And it, it, it was just blatant. It was just obvious to me. So that's how I've always taken it is taking a science approach to it. But at the end of the day, I was thinking, you know, we would have these conversations about abortion or my Christian friends would have conversations. And I kind of turned into more of an abolitionist rather than a pro-lifer. And the abolitionists do not want you a part of their movement if you do not incorporate God into their message. They also don't want you if you are a Catholic. <laughs> so uh, we'll put that out there too. So I'm kind of in my own little group by myself. And um, so I started wondering like, well, if this is inherently wrong and if all people have inherent value, how can I prove that scientifically to all of these liberals, to all of these pro-choicers? And I couldn't. And I never brought up God or religion with any of these pro-choicers that I did meet because I didn't want to go there and have that, you know, oh, well, I'm, I'm an atheist. So, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm an atheist too. And, and we can disagree on this on a scientific level. It just, the argument was just lacking. It was lacking a lot. And I did not have an answer for why we had value because scientifically that's, that, that can't be answered with science. So um, now being pregnant and converting to Christianity, Catholicism from that viewpoint of a secular pro-life view, it has made everything like a hundred times more important. And what I say about abortion, I remember just falling on my knees, crying, 
reading some of these pro-choice comments from people one time and I mean I was crying so hard I ended up just vomiting everywhere because it would make me so sad and I'm emotional right now but it just uh you know I there's a reason why I've always felt like that and I think you know having my own baby now I used I used to say I would never have babies I hated babies I, I didn't support killing them, but I didn't want them. I didn't want to be pregnant. I didn't want to ruin my body, you know, and it's just, man, cringe. It was so cringy and it's so embarrassing today. Yeah, but I mean, look, you, you cringe, but you got a good head on your shoulders. You always knew abortion was wrong. And this, by the way, this issue can't be adjudicated by appealing to biology as you know that's just a that's a dead question that's a, a dead letter that issue does that goes nowhere biologically you got 46 chromosomes of human life and it is it meets the standard biological definition for life from conception this is biologically a human being a little human being uh, fetus just means baby in latin and so the the horizons sort of contract that much when an atheist who rejects God is talking about the moral lyseity of of killing a little human. It's it's no longer an abortion discussion, is it? For an atheist, it's just is it wrong to murder? That that's that's a, a Christian exactly. precept. And for, the atheists can never can never answer that question like you, you talk to go look at richard dawkins the guy's a joke you talk about cringe he attempts to answer this question and it makes one laugh it's almost you almost feel bad for him atheists literally can't say they're it without a with creation requires a creator and any kind of moral law requires a creator if you reject the creator then how do you say i, I would ask people when i used to do atheist debates uh, in in person like, dude, we disagree. You probably don't like me much. You're an atheist. Why not? Okay, I guess there's the binding force of law. But aside from that, why not kill me and eat my face, right? Or bash my brains out? There's no answer that will avail them. And, and so the abort, it's not an abortion question. It's a murder question. Yeah, no, that, that describes it perfectly because then the argument is not, is this a human? The argument is, can we kill can, can we kill people? And why is it wrong to kill people? And if it's not wrong, because there's no authority or anything that you can say that makes sense, why it's wrong to kill somebody, then your argument just falls apart. And that's something that um, it really just means so much more to me now, understanding that a baby comes because God wants it to be, wants them he, she to be there. And one thing that I've helped kind of tell other people and something that's helped me in the abortion argument is that I don't think God makes mistakes. And if this baby is here in any woman's womb, God did not put them there by mistake. And if you want to take creation and everything else into your own hands and reject God's plan, then that's on you. But I'm not going to do that. And one thing about the Catholic church that really, really, really just solidified why this is the right path for me is Justin explaining to me and showing me um, passages from books from popes and saints talking about how contraception is bad. 
uh, tying your tubes <laughs> is bad. Um, all, all this stuff relating to sex and marriage and creating life and the amount of passion and theology and love that goes into each part of those discussions from the Catholic church is so amazing. It's so profound and it makes sense. That's the most important part is that it makes perfect sense. And talking about how it makes sense also makes sense. It's not just like, you know, having a synod on synodality or something stupid like that. Only an idiot would do that, right? Um, That's an insider's joke. But it's talking (laughs) sensibly about how a decision that one came to made sense as one came to it is very enlightening. That's what I loved so much about uh, your video, Caitlin. It It was, as I said before, really, really well done. People remember... Uh, like, subscribe, uh, click the bell, leave a comment. I like cookies or in the UK, I like biscuits is good enough. Um, Caitlin in her video mentions, uh, Justin, that I nearly did the uh, Josh Justin thing. (laughs) Plagued me my whole life. Justin, Caitlin mentions in her video, this simple fact, it's kind of what we were talking about two questions ago. She had a Catholic, a Roman Catholic husband and a, Roman Catholic wedding before she became Catholic. Now, famously, some people will say infamously, I'm, I'm currently stumping this book, The Case for Patriarchy, all about <laughs> as priest, prophet, king of the household. I, I'd like to actually send you guys a couple copies if you don't already have one. Um, and the, you know, it's, it's a really interesting precept that we have the upper Upper patriarchy, we have a bifurcated patriarchy in Roman Catholicism. That's what it is. We have the clerical patriarchy, the bishops and the priests, and we have a lower household patriarchy. And it's both are all male. There cannot be a matriarchy. Uh, tell that to the bishops, even though they act like the hens. You can't have a matriarchy there. You can't have one households. You need what is needed is a man to be the priest, prophet, king of each home. JP2 called it the Ecclesiola, the church in miniature. And the interesting thing is, of course, over the last 150 years, from about 1848 onward, that's what we've had, is a burgeoning matriarchy where women try to be the priest, prophet, king of the household. Final decision goes to them. You know, everyone's, everyone's it's, it's a gynocentric world here in America now. Um, Brookings Institute, which is not a right-wing think tank, prints these these facts. I always say it's Pew Research, but it's Brookings that show that if your if one's mother is the one that drags them to church and enforces the you know the rigor of practicing the faith, then there is a huge attrition rate because neither the young boys nor the young girls take that seriously. And that's what me and all my friends growing up in the 80s and 90s, that's what we had. And I think now still people growing up in the 2000s, it's like, if you were a cradle Catholic, your mom was dragging you to church. That's the the devil's final assault on the family that Sister Lucy of Fatima wrote to Cardinal Carlo Cafaro, rest his soul, in 1981. When the father, this is Brookings research, when the father takes the family to church, you know what the uh, attrition rate is? It's next to zero. I mean, it's like it's the normal 20 percent. 
but it's like 80% retention rate. If the father's the one bringing everyone to church, he's the passionate one. It's like 20% retention rate when it's just the mother. What is it when it's both of them together? It's the exact same as what it is when the father's taking him to church. That, that proves the, the mother adds so much to the family, but adds nothing to being the priest, prophet, king of the household. What pleases me about your guy's story in this lengthy verbose question is the way it worked and the way that I, I look at you guys and I just think what a great young couple, the way Caitlin talks about you, even the few mentions in the video, <laughs> brief mentions, that's a good young couple. That's solid. She's like, she closes the video saying, I trusted my husband. That's, that's foremost. That's not weird or brainwashed. Leftists would call that brainwashed. That is nature. That is God's nature at work. What do you say? I, I agree 100%. And I'm really fortunate, first of all, that I do fall into that 20% uh, statistic that was going to church with their mother. And I'm very fortunate that, you know, I never gave up my faith in Christ. You know, I at times was not a very you know strong practice in Catholic, like I had mentioned earlier, but I still maintained that Jesus was real, the Trinity was real, and that, you know, I I need to receive him if I wish to, you know, gain entrance into his kingdom. And so I think in terms of a household, the flock is only as strong as its shepherd. So a lot of people like to reject this natural hierarchy of, um, you know, we, we see these boundaries now being blurred in society where man can be woman, woman can be man, uh, the wife can fulfill the husband's roles uh, and vice versa. So these boundaries we have to understand are here for our benefit because man and woman, um, they complement one another. It's not offensive to say a man should have certain roles and a woman should have certain roles. That's what true love is. And her and I, we have this beautiful relationship with one another that even when it was more secular, she was always willing to defer to my opinions and, you know, what my convictions were because she loved me and trusted me with 100% of her heart. So even though I had only returned to the Catholic faith in September of 2019, and we were getting married just a few months after that, when I came to her and said, Kate, I think we got to do this right and do this sacramentally in the Catholic church. She, even as a, a staunch, like a atheist didn't want anything <laughs> to do with the church. She loved me enough. This was the Christ inside of her willing to die, to submit to what the husband felt was best for the family. And it's a really beautiful thing to see how it's manifested in our relationship. And if I can real quick add um, sometimes at night when we pray, we like to focus on how we live in a time where people crave signs from God. People think we have a dead God that doesn't reveal himself to us. I think our lives and our relationship has been a true sacrament of the way in which God is still alive in the world because it's been so obvious to us. And it's been obvious enough that it's helped her to convert this year. Can I add something? My, um, so my previous relationships, I was always, um, I'm the, I'm going to control everything. I have the final say, I know what's best. And there's a reason why they never worked out because that was just a toxic environment. That was a toxic way to have a relationship and being with Justin and my dad will tell you this, it is completely unlike my previous relationships and my previous behavior to just say, 
I trust that you know what's best for me. I trust for you to make decisions with all the money. I trust for you to lead me down a path that I will not regret and that I, I, I know will end me up where I'm supposed to be. And my dad still to this day, we've been married for a year and whatever. <laughs> he knows the date better than I do. But he, um, he says that it's just, it's so weird seeing me go through this um, change in my relationship because I trust him so much. I know that he would never do anything or lead me down a path that wasn't the best for me. It's, it's, an, it's clearly, clearly an ordered relationship when 99% of even the, the marriages that stay together are disordered. And one gets this, look, I go to, I, people invite me to their houses for dinner. I'm talking trads you know, that are supposed to be like the apotheosis of practicing Catholics and they're, the husband's getting kicked under the table. And it's like, you know, in the, in the more secular sort of cultural Catholic households I'll go to, it'll be like just the wife running everything, the wife calling everyone in to eat, the wife kind of bossing everyone around. It's, it's awful in the cringe way. We, we all recognize any place, anytime you go anywhere in society now, like feminism is the central leftism. It is by the way, central to the fall of Adam and Eve, right? It's, it's Eve acting like the man, uh, the man acting like the woman. And, um, you know, all the early patristics said, if Adam had dealt with the serpent, we never would have fallen. Uh, Chris Austin says that, Jerome says it. But, but when you go to the, the interesting thing is when you go to the trad households, the, there's a sort of basic cognition, cognizable uh, moment where they're like, oh, the husband should lead. But still, because we grew up in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, it's still the wife doing that Brookings Institute thing. And she's kicking the husband under the table and being, giving him an order to lead. And I'm like, guys, this, this can't work. You can't tell someone, you know, you need to lead. It's like as silly as forming a nonconformist club or something. It's, it's a contradiction in terms. Uh, one thing I, you said, go ahead, Justin. I was going to say, I think part of that problem, too, is uh, in the culture we live in that, you know, obviously uh, with inflation and people not making as much money, husband and wife both having to work, it seems as though that kind of situation is set up uh, on purpose because the household becomes the wife's or the mother's where, you know, she's at the, ho the house for most of the day. She's dealing with the children a lot more than the husband. By the time the father comes home, he's so exhausted. He just wants his dinner and to go to sleep. So he doesn't have that same interaction with his kids and with his family that the wife and mother would have. Um, whereas we are so fortunate that, you know, because we're self-employed, we're home together constantly. So we're able to value each other's input and do this together as a team um, versus I'm not out of the house and it's Kate's house. It's, you know, it's, it's our house together at the same time. And so there's a great book that I, I, I read before we became pregnant, actually. Uh, I believe it was titled Always a Catholic. And it was about teaching your kids to uh, be able to stay Catholic once they grow of the age of reason. And one of the things that stuck out to me most in that book was that it recommended for fathers to try to find a way to work from home. That way they can be as much of a part of that household as the woman. Amen. Yeah. Now look, this is a really important point. And you guys are at the beginning of your marriage, clearly awesome foundation. Now, now you're, you're starting your, your, procreative the procreative part of your family we live in america which is 
um, you know, I call it prod in light America. It's half Protestant, half enlightenment values here. And both of them represent a kind of rejection of vocation, of, of natural and supernatural law vocation. So the standard story, for, it doesn't matter whether we're talking sort of enlightenment, the enlightenment's the, the intellectual grandparentage of the secular left, right? The Protestant Reformation is the intellectual grandparentage of what we call the religious right in America. Both of them exclude us. Both of them exclude the sacraments. Both of them exclude the natural law. So what the Catholics were just kind of odd man out. And for, for Protestants, they really sacra, um, they didn't have the sacraments. So their means of quotidian grace, daily grace is, was labor. You know, Max Weber talks about this in the spirit of Protestantism. So what would happen is um, in America, the dad would come home, just like you said, Justin, he'd be tired and he'd be like, well, this is what I contribute to the equation sit on the chair, whatever, get a, get a natty light or whatever it was and, and uh, watch TV and keep, you know, the woman would keep the kids quiet and then everyone would go to bed at seven 30, like good, good uh, wasps or whatever, whatever. So they go to bed really early. And <laughs> then, and then like, there's no interaction and this produced, particularly in the so-called greatest generation, this produced the hippies in the boomers, the worst generation ever. The, the boomers, they're like, oh, we've seen what the religious right has to offer. And it's, it's, it's like profession as vocation. That's not it. Instead, the Catholic understands, no, the sacrament, the sacraments are where we get the daily grace. And the man's sacramental commitments begin, begin at 5.30 p.m. when he gets home from work, right? Now you got to play with your kids. You got to pray with your kids. You got to have fun. You got it like Teresa of Lisieux's parents. Now is when your workload begins. It's like Theoden of Rohan's, like my writer's got to ride three days to war and then have strength to fight. You know, that's what a man's got on his shoulders because not everyone can work from home the way you guys do or, or now I do. But um, it's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing, sincerely, to see uh, people so, so early in their marriage having, having all of these uh, senses sort of intuitively. Uh, I, I, I just, I continue to uh, be impressed with you guys, but I'd like to wrap up the Catholic segment. I want to talk to you about some post-Trump isms, um, but in a second, but one, one final point I wanted to ask you about Kate is uh, you mentioned pride, the sin of pride as a kind of counterproof against atheism because of what you saw with the people that would lay off you when you said you're an atheist, the, the secular left in general, the, the, the vile, you know, hatred that they're filled with and the intellectual pride and the voluntary pride, will and intellect. How was this kind of a, count a counterproof for you? So in the video specifically, I mentioned Pride Month. And like I said in the beginning of this uh, podcast here or this episode, I mentioned I knew nothing. I didn't even know the seven deadly sins. I did not even know that. And when I started to ask questions, I would ask him questions. I would ask my Protestant friends questions. Um, and when he told me, he's like, you know, the worst of the seven deadly sins is pride. And I was like, oh my gosh, from a secular, secular point of view, pride month has always been just disgusting. I mean, evil and just gross. And for me, every time I went to a pride parade, it turned violent. And you wonder why, why is this happening? 
And I could not ignore that it was not a coincidence that they named one of the most disgusting, gotta watch what I say here, <laughs> the most vile things I've ever seen displayed in public. And the worst treatment I've really ever gotten was from the people who call themselves, you know, going to pride parades or they celebrate pride month or they have pride for their sexuality. It's not a coincidence that they took the worst of the seven deadly sins and made that their logo and their chant. I'm like, there is not a coincidence here. This, this means something. But also, now that you mention it, I had a lot of personal pride in my entire life with my videos or how many views I would get or, um, you know, just, just trying to say, like, I did this. I did all this. This is all my work. And no one else has helped me. And it's all been me. And now that I can look at the things I've been given and think, I didn't do any of this and I don't deserve it. You know, every opportunity I've been given is from God. And he's been able to work through me to to display these things to my followers. And he's given me opportunities to do certain things to gain these followers. And now I have just a new appreciation for every single thing that I own and everything that I have in my life and my husband and now my baby and even my little cat that's sitting behind me that I mentioned in the video. Um, So survivor. Yeah, (laughs) she's a survivor. So it just, you know, there, there's different aspects of pride and it's the worst one because it, it impacts the rest of the six. It, it leads to the rest of the six deadly sins. And once I learned that, I was like, oh my God, it makes sense. It just makes sense. So the rest yeah. of the six subserve pride and you can go through all seven of them and see how the, the other six subserve it. They all cross fertilize pride. It's the, the sin of Satan, right? In an opposite and inverse way to the way that the rest of the six sacraments all subserve it. You can even sync one up with one with those seven and seven. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a you know, mind, mind job when you see how it works. But pride is the sin, just as the Eucharist, the, the anti-pride is the sacrament. And all of them subserve it and, and cross and not cross fertilize it. They they sub fertilize it in some specific way. Uh, and um, you know, lust and pride go together in a really interesting way. There's a lot of good good literature on that as well. Isn't it interesting? Also, just final final Catholicism point. Um, I, I I pitch this to both of you and let you respond to it. A a, a new Catholic and an old Catholic. Um, Kate and Justin, that Catholicism, I I also really like this part of Kate's video. You know, I asked all these ecumenically Christian questions, and the only Christians that had systematic or even half compelling answers were Catholics. Isn't it interesting that Protestantism is halfway between Roman Catholicism and the secular world? I mean, that's really what the the Protestant Reformation was, was the pre uh, kind of pre enlightenment. So Protestantism has made all these capitulations to the secular left. You know, oh, we don't have sacraments. That's kooky, too. You, you could hear a Protestant saying to a secular left atheist, like, oh, yeah, they're weird. They believe in, like, sacramental magic. They, don't, they, have, they have these bishops with funny hats. They think they're part of some royal lineage. Ha, ha, ha. You could hear Protestants saying all this stuff, even though Protestants tend to be very nice. 
the secular left tends to be douchebags. But like in general, you could hear them agreeing about all this stuff. It's because they're halfway secular. It's a halfway secular form of uh, of Christianity. That's really what it is when you're being fully honest. And yet you say in your video, and it's so, so true, that even though we make the bigger, more facially implausible claims, the Catholics do than the Protestants, we're not trying to get halfway secular like they are. We're like, no, the Eucharist is literally body, blood, soul, divinity of Christ. And look at all these Eucharistic miracles where it turns into heart tissue, and it's always the same blood type of heart tissue. Um, we make the bigger claims, and we have the systematic answers. We have the smartest man who ever lived, Aquinas, right? Isn't that impressive? Well, from a convert and a, a revert's point of view, each of you in turn. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I think it's hard for a lot of people who watch that video to be able to fully appreciate just how profound her conversion is, because unless you are a Catholic, her conversion wasn't just simply belief in no God to believe in God. She went from belief in no God to belief that th this object that we call the Eucharist is literally the body, flesh, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is such a huge jump, way more than just simply no God to God. And it's so beautiful to have witnessed and help her be a part of. And I say this not as a judgment, but as an observation that I think one of the leading advocates for atheism is actually, and unfortunately, fundamentalism in this country, where yep. this whole read scripture for your help, your, for yourself, come to your own conclusions. But at the same time, my narrow conclusion is the the truth and the way. And for her, um, her biggest hurdle was something like evolution. And I told her, I was like, you know, Catholics can believe in evolution. You don't have to believe in spontaneous creation like so many fundamentalists believe. And I think once she was able to understand that, the rest, the rest just uh, suddenly clicked from there on out. If I can yep. add on to that as the person who was having these conversations, I love my friends dearly. I kind of offended them in that video without meaning to, uh, my, my non-Catholic friends. The, the issue is that when I would ask the same question to a Catholic, uh, a, a Jew, and a Protestant, the only person out of, out of this conversation that could speak to me in terms that made sense, they did not stutter, they did not have any, you know, they knew what they were talking about. It made sense to me was the Catholic perspective. And I would watch a conversation form uh, between all of them. And it was always the non-Catholics who went away from the conversation, who didn't have scripture to back them up, who didn't have the I would say 2000 years of writings, and but, but that's the other thing. When yeah. I would listen to their explanation, it always went to a conversation of why Catholicism is wrong and not why they're right. And they would always tell me that you should just read the Bible for yourself and you can come up with your own conclusion. That's what Jesus wanted. And I would go back to him and I would ask him, well, why don't we just why, why do we have to take, you know, pointers from all of these writings and the, the church has been around for 2000 years. And when it, it makes sense that priests have to study and the church has studied the original text, even letters and traditions that were not listed in the Bible that we have as resources, 
they know the language and you have to understand the language that it was originally lit, written in, all the books, all the letters, all of everything that has been given to us. These people read from a Bible that has been altered. It has been uh, messed with. And that's one of the other defining moments for me. I'm like, your Bible doesn't say the same things as the book we're reading. And our book, come, our Bible comes from, you know, resources from people that have known the language, have studied the language and go back to the original language. So that was something else that really pointed out to me is the source of the information. Has it been altered? And unfortunately, many of theirs have. And you've probably seen uh, since you follow Liberty Hangout on Twitter, Tim, is that whenever I'll get Protestants in the replies, I will always resort to asking because they always tell me, read the Bible. So I'll say, what is the Bible? Who compiled the Bible? Yeah. Who, who gave, who, who, you know, has authority over what the canon is? And those are questions that they cannot answer. They could if they were being on. They just, be, like, I would never, <laughs> I would never read anything the Catholic Church uh, compiled or said or did. Now, here, read the Bible instead. It's like, that's our book, bro. Britannian <laughs> canon. I mean, 27 books. What, what are you talking about? It's, it's like, it's like if in 2000 years they start passing out the catechism from 1992. And it's like, wait, yeah. wasn't, wasn't that ours? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I would never believe anything the church said. We, we should probably give them the Roman catechism, but, uh, you know, <laughs> but yeah, it'd be like, I would never read anything you're, you're, uh, you know, whore of Babel church distributes. Instead, read this catechism. It's really great. You're like, this is a bad SNL skit. I'm stuck in an SNL skit. And that's the thing. Once you get an atheist to theism, there's always that big step up when you, the, the modes of credibility of, of faith are hard going from, from atheism to theism. But once someone's like, yeah, there has to be a God. It's this is this. Atheists are the butt of all of the Luciferians who run the world's jokes. I mean, that's just that's that's literally the truth. Once it's like theism, you have give me a, give me a five minute conversation, you know, and it's like that that person will become a Catholic, not because of me, but because of the obvious, 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 obvious truths of the faith. It's just oh, and by the way, because I know a lot of people are going to be losing their minds in in the comment section and all that about uh evolution that e-word there has been a purity spiraling trend in roman catholicism of late to assume uh puritanical fundamentalism and it's it's really really odd it's really odd Yes, there is an encyclical on it that is a binding encyclical from Pius XII called Humani Generis. And there are things that a Catholic de fide are required to believe about Genesis's first chapters. Uh, de fide, it's, it's like six items. I used to say it was four, but I was kind of conflating a couple of them. Six items that we have to believe about the first man and the first woman. And there are itera some iterations of, of scientific evolution that fit. And this is, this is where I'm at now, though I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. I'm, I'm open on this, but I'm, I'm with you guys. There are tons of scientific theism, Catholic science uh, iterations that, that meet all six of those uh, requirements that you have to believe de fide. And still, it counts as evolution, some iteration of evolution. Pius XII made this official church te teaching in a 
uh, ecumenical called Humane Generis. Go read it, people. I don't want to spend tons of time on it. But yes, I don't know what's in the water. Catholics are thinking we have to be like fundamentalist Puritans on this issue. And outside of those six points, we must believe. Uh, and even if open. even if you look at a lot of the church fathers um, or, or if, if, if you look at St. Uh, Augustine, for example, um, he rejects the literal interpretation of uh, Genesis. Of course. So, yes. So, you know, obviously they couldn't you know, have any understanding of evolution since the evolutionary theory is only about 200 years old. But at least we can see that they did not take the six day account of creation literally there were many church fathers that believed creation happened on one single day so if there was any church father that believed that just that alone shows that we are not obligated to believe that it took you know seven literal 24-hour periods to make the whole universe well also just just a fortiori there are two accounts back to back that right. if you're taking them historically are contradictory different order in the accounts of creation, these are anagogical accounts. There are six aspects that are not just anagogical, but literally the order, the, the seven days in the Adam and Eve account, those are two, it's creation myth A, creation myth B. There are literal historical aspects of truth there, but most of them are anagogical. If you're taking them all as historical, then they actually contradict each other. The, the order in which things are created. I don't know how people, how people miss that. Also, St. Augustine, Justin, Basically, the father of the well-articulated account of creation, ex nihilo. Did you know that in Soviet uh, Russia and in Maoist China, they were putting scientists to death who accepted <laughs> uh, Big Bang, a Catholic scientist, wow. Monsignor Lemaitre? Do you know why? Do you know why uh, Stalin articulated it? Because this is a proof of Augustine's account christian account of creation ex nihilo science gets there it gets to the party it just gets there late good theology like augustine's gets there first did you know that in soviet russia and in uh yeah maoist china also they were putting to death quantum physicists that pushed quantum mechanics why they didn't say this specifically but because it was an account of the catholic iteration of thomism potency and act that's the only way to explain the behavior of particle physics at a very small level. Did you know that in uh, Gregor Mendel, the Mendelian genetics, also a Catholic priest, um, proved the account of the Catholic family and that those people, Mendelian geneticists were being put to death in Eastern Europe, that science will always get to the party. It just gets there late. And scientists who believe that they're some sacerdotal order of priests, they look stupid because they have bad science for 1500 years. Our theology, the one true faith, got there way early and it understands it in way deeper ways. So you people, don't be Protestant. Don't act like a Puritan. You don't have to be afraid of evolution. None of the bad, corny, cringe, atheist accounts of evolution are true. But as Pius XII said, he's one of the good guys, one of the piouses. Uh, you, you, can, you can trust... Um, that if some iteration of evolution is true, it does not, it cannot contradict our faith. Can I ask you guys a parting shot question? I want to each have you take your crack at it because of a question that, um, a, a comment you made before. And it's about Liberty Hangouts, ideological direction of travel. Are you guys ready for that? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I know you started it in, in a more, um, I, I really do want you both to weigh in, Justin first, then Kate. 
uh, you started it in a more libertarian direction. I didn't know the accounts like six to seven years old. Um, I only came halfway, but that's just my solipsist view. Welcome of to the party. Point. You're just you're just like the scientist. You're late. <laughs> I'm late to the party. Okay. Yeah. I don't you're like to the I don't like the way I work out in this analogy. Uh, no. um, yeah, the Liberty Party. Um, well, okay. So this. 20, 2016, 2017, the best years of the Trump presidency, right? When he was, he's coming out hot, slinging disses at all of our enemies, slaying foes metaphorically. He turned out to actually be a conservative. I was worried he'd be a rhino, you know, a tough talking rhino after the campaign. He came out and it was, it felt like win after win after win for, and I, I hate this because I've never repudiated my strongly minarchical drives uh, i'm a thomas thomas are minarchists man we don't we don't <laughs> like the government um uh, i mean just read thomas it, it is it is it is there writ large um so but but trump represented particularly 16 17 maybe 18 then the trump presidency started dwindling um felt like the populists were getting to be the loud conservatives in the room and felt like the minarchists and the liberty lovers liberty hangouters and even the libertarians kind of, you know, they're kind of cringe because of what they say about social issues. They felt kind of banished to the kitty table, right? Or maybe even to the corner of the room. Um, they kind of deserve it because they're, if they're actually libertarians on suicide and drugs and they're just cringe. But, but <laughs> we're talking about, we're talking about 2019, 2020, Australia globalism, you know, lockdowns, vaccine mandates, vaccine passports, all of the ish talking against, forget libertarians, but, but against the minarchists that the populists did in the first part of the Trump presidency, it didn't age well, did it? I mean, I'm, I'm here to say people need to forget, forget drugs and, and sex and legalizing prostitution. Forget all that stuff. Even though, you know, Aquinas said that, that prostitution actually should be legal, right? He, he's really a minarchist, but forget all the <laughs> corny, <know> <laughs> cringe cultural positions. Yeah. Make, make porn illegal, but do it at the state level. But the point is this is, that didn't age well. Now, now I think a lot of people, a lot of those populists and integralists and all that, I think they're having a second look at, you know, minarchism and, and libertarianism and like, maybe we talk too much trash because um, have you seen what they're doing in Australia? Like this is, you know, it, I don't know if these populists have been just asleep for the last two years, but my count, this is two years of uh, globo tyranny. What, what do you say to that as the founder and CEO of uh, Liberty Hangout? I think the one thing that's always been consistent uh, in my beliefs over the years, because obviously, um, you know, I went from being libertarian to anarchist to back to libertarian to conservative. Um, but but the one the one thing that I've always like been consistent on throughout all of that was that I'm a core believer in decentralization. Yeah. So I believe and what I would like to see is more states be independent of federal rule. And we're seeing that in a large way with all these mandates that they're taking on the Biden administration. We have a beautiful and, and awesome governor in Florida, Ron DeSantis, that he is not afraid to head butts with Biden and the Democrats and do all the things necessary to protect his people. And I must say that Ron DeSantis, he's protecting a true liberty. There are a lot of libertarians who see 
uh, Republican governors banning vaccine mandates and be like, well, you can't tell a business what to do. Yes, you can, because if what the business is doing is interfering with the true liberty, which is the, it, the dignity of the person, then that would be a legitimate use of his authority to do that. And I think it, it change really needs to happen more at the local level, such as what DeSantis is doing in Florida. Agreed. How about you, Kate? Well, I have never been an anarchist. I've, I, I guess I flirted with libertarianism before I kind of figured out that they were just a bunch of degenerates that just wanted everything to like, you know, walk down the street naked and have sex with, you know, whoever you wanted to on the streets. Um, I'm not into all that. So uh, that, that was quick. They also really hated me for being uh, the face of Liberty Hangout after I, I kind of took that spot from Justin. They hated it because uh, I wasn't a libertarian, but I flew the, I wasn't an anarchist, but I flew the ANCAP colors uh, on our logo and it was my face on it. So they really hated it. I have always been a conservative. I've never really found that, you know, his discussions and his uh, ideas of being an anarcho-capitalist would ever happen. And libertarianism at its core would never uh, work anyway. I'm okay with authority. I'm okay with that as long as it's the right authority. Um, maybe that's me as a woman speaking. <laughs> that I, I'm okay if it's the right authority uh, making you know good decisions, just like Go Governor Ron DeSantis. I simply... At this point in my life, feel as though Trump was good. Of course he was good. I think how people have reacted and how they've changed their values and how they've, they've just cared about being pro-Trump rather than being pro the values that brought us here to this place, that has been really disappointing. I see people, uh, I mean, I'll just say it, their values are now just, let's go Brandon merch. Let's just get out there and sell these, sell this merch. Let's, you know, hang on to Trump's name and do all of this weird stuff. And he's not even the president anymore. And they preach a conservative message. None of these people that are influencers actually live it. Yeah. Give me somebody who can live the lifestyle that you want to promote onto our country. That's where I come. That's like what I'm worried about right now. Um, so <laughs> it just, it really bothers me to see uh, the people post Trump just hanging on to the populism that came from Trump. And it's like, why do we need Trump to promote family values? Why do we need Trump to display and actually talk, walk the walk and talk the talk? And half the people that say these things are out doing drugs and cheating on each other. And um... well, it's like I, it's like I mentioned earlier how our marriage is a sacrament of God's love. Uh, you know, marriage is not just a contract. Marriage is not just an arrangement for the benefit of the two people and the children. Marriage is, first and foremost, it is a vow with God, and it is a way to serve him. By serving my wife, I'm serving God. By her serving me, she's serving God, just as Christ serves the church. And so I think that, you know, adding on to what she says here is that we all must become sacraments. We, we, we can't just be books here. You know, we can't just say, do this, do this, do that, but not actually live it. You have to be a visible sacrament. And I think that, you know, that's another way that change happens is outside of just 
the politics of the country will get there when people can be sacraments in their own household first. Amen. Yeah. No, I mean, we're called to be salt and light. I guess what I was asking about is I don't, aside from answer your question. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 that, no, that was, that was really good. I I'm, I'm, I'm pivoting to, Aside from the goofy, the, the people that call themselves libertarians, right? Like the ones that voted for um, who Joe is, Jorgensen. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> okay, if you are a libertarian party member, then that's fine. I was, I was a federalist in, in law school. I was a federalist society uh, chapter president. And FedSoc is like 75% libertarian, 25% conservative. I'm committing the sin I was about to decry about treating it like a hard line divide, but, but people think it's a hard line divide. And, um, and so they, and they, all they ever did was make fun of conservatives. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm conservative the way you're, you guys are, are parsing it. So I, yes, those guys are cringe. The ones that are libertarian party are cringe. They want to run down the street naked and like smoke pot and do, do all and legalize everything. That's, that's cringe because we're talking about social stuff, but when we're talking about Ron Paul or Rand Paul or someone that has uh, economics that are uh, influenced by particularly the Austrian school, I mean, great, great Catholics, you know, um, craft, Catholic type thinkers like Hans Hermann Hoppe. Most of the people out there that I see on Twitter bashing uh, anyone with any kind of um, libertarian impulse those people are equally have nothing to say when I confront them with like, well, uh, you're really only a libertarian on issue by issue. There is no such thing as a libertarian aside from the goofy uh, naked people who are smoking pot. It's like, (laughs) well, are you libertarian on, on lockdowns? You sound, you know, pretty much all these populists, they pivoted pretty damn quick. They sound pretty, it's either Liberty versus uh, collectivism. Right. And it's like, yeah, yeah, are you a libertarian on masks, mask mandates? Yeah, well, I favor liberty over collectivism. Are you libertarian on a vaccine mandate? You bet. So pretty much anyone with half a brain, the rest of the country is all crazy. We're not even talking about them. But within right wing, I think there needs to be a kind of mea culpa um, from 2016, 2017, 2018, where all of conservatism was going crazily populist They're like yeah all we need is government to have power power as as you know they say in lord of the rings power what it is is a potency and so once you give up the government a certain amount of what the founders called energy or a potency they can do whatever they want with it and ex post we can adjudge whether or not they well they did something that they they you know they distributed it allocated it in a way that's wise or not but to jealously guard our liberty and let's say not give government much, again, this is just the Thomist in me, the Aristo Thomist in me speaking. Um, you know, the government should not, lying is bad. We don't have a right to lie, but should it be against the law to lie? No, of course not. And I just, I think that in 2016, 2017, 2018, the right was going dangerously populist and the lockdowns as it as they needed to shut all those populist mouths like we need we need to on the right wing always be a, a careful mixture of order and and strong strong guard guardian guardianship guarantorship of liberty actually 
I do remember your question was about, you know, lockdowns, Australia. So I missed that whole part of your question. Um, I think the populist movement, kind of to your point, they definitely spoke out about against the lockdowns and the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates and stuff, not from the libertarian perspective, but I think it was more of like, obviously it's wrong to force people to stay in their houses. It's wrong to force people to wear a mask. It's definitely wrong to force somebody to get a shot in their arm. I think they took it on more as from, yes, this is individual liberty, but also the left is pushing it. So we're obviously going to be against it. And then everybody spoke out against it, which was ultimately good. So there is some good and this whole populist ideas, I don't think they come at it from like a libertarian perspective, though, because it's all just so blatantly wrong. But also the left, they, they love to just stick together. They love to stick together. If, if Biden or a Democrat is going to push mandates, especially vaccine mandates, they will find they will literally pull it out of their butt a reason why it works and you can never convince them otherwise. So I think the rejection on that part of like a populist, I like a populist movement, I think it's, it's okay. It's okay. Um, you know, do we need to get into the dirt and the mud about, well, this is the libertarian perspective. This is what you guys need to come back to a little bit more. I think right now what's most important is that we have as many people that we can, even if they're of the populist mindset and they're doing it because it's popular, speaking out against it, ultimately that's, I think that's a good thing. If we can get as many, you know what I mean? And if we, if we have to get into the dirt, we can, because you're absolutely right. Uh, At the end of the day, what, what is, you know, why does it make sense why mandates don't work? Well, it's because we're individual people. You can't force us to do these things. So at the end of the day, I'm just glad that we do have a more, you know, populist movement that will push us towards speaking out against that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's too soon. Maybe I'm like, look, we're still fighting the the globalist takeover. I'm also, you know, a part of this, this big documentary, 24 interviewees called The Greatest Reset, all about pushing back on this stuff. It's, it's Luciferian, it's globalist. And um, like, like Justin said, what I say to the, the nationalists is like, nationalism is better to glo- than globalism, but you know what's better than nationalism? States' rights, subsidiarity. Uh, you know, the Catholic Church has been teaching this for 2,000 years too. Localism is always better than nationalism. Nationalism, of course, is better than globalism. I'm just trying to pull people back because the real authorities in society, if you look at the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is household fathers, right? And that's mm-hmm. what subsidiarity is, is we, we need authority only for, we go to a, an outward sphere of uh, governance only when the more local sphere is incompetent to do that kind of thing. So a father can't raise an army with his kids, right? It would be horrible. Everyone would get killed. It would be, it would go so badly, right? I have, I have six little girls and, and one little boy. I, I couldn't even make an army, but um, so you, you need an army. You need the government to build post roads. You need them to do the things that the government purports to do. The fed purports to do an article one section eight. It's like 15 really unsexy things like coining money and building postal roads. All of the other powers were left to either the state legislatures or the people and some of the moral legislation that that populists want to see that I don't object to ban porn. Sure. 
but do follow the constitution, ban it at the state level. The, the Fed has no, no God-given right to do that. It's too far away. And um, maybe I'm bringing this up too soon before we've even beaten the globalists at the lockdown game. Certainly, like you said, Kate, I'm agreeing that it's good. Everyone needs to yell, yell loud, uh, disobey, do, do whatever they can. Don't trust even the cops or, or, or have been complicit in BLM rioting and locking down. Look at the cops in Australia. I'm just saying after that, I think conservatives of goodwill, whether they're pop, more populist or more libertarian, will look, will kind of reconfigure and it will be a healthy thing to say, oh, remember those crazy ass years in 2019 and 2020 when the globalists were really going for it like never before? Yeah, we all had this instinct to resist authority. And, and, you know, in retrospect, maybe we'd been losing that too much on the right wing. Maybe we'd been going to too much of a big government right wing thing. I, I think that's the way history is going to judge that. It's a bit of a pendulum on the right. And I think, uh, you know, the resisting authority thing is always something that the non-crazy libertarians have in their corner. So that, think- that's why I was, that's why I was bringing it up is just say maybe, maybe in a few years, once we get past Sauron and Mordor, then we'll be able to say, look at how this configures in history. But maybe I'm bringing it up too soon, too soon which, which I, I like. also think in this country, we're very as much as things, things have gone wrong. We have an experience in Australia type of, uh, you know, rule in our country. I think we're very privileged and blessed in this country that it hasn't gotten that far. All things are still bad, but I think people are very comfortable here. They don't know. They don't know how bad it can be. And I think that if we were to experience that, I think then you make excellent points about like, guys, where, where do these, these things come from? So I think also to your point, like maybe we haven't beaten it yet. So we can't, we can't go back to what you're saying. I think that we haven't really experienced enough for people in this country to get uncomfortable because I think more outrage would have been dealt if we got a little bit more uncomfortable but that's just my last point with that. I also think, I also think too, that um, I I like to bring back uh, how the Soviet union was crippled by a lot of the work that John Paul II did to inspire uh, a cultural and um, religious revolution. So that, you know, if your authority is ultimately Christ, well then no man on earth, um, well, outside of the hierarchy of the church (laughs) has any authority over you. Um, And so they had a sort of solidarity that, you know, they put their trust in Christ and they built communities so that they were able to organize protests and um, strikes and everything that were actually disruptive to the Soviet regime. And then little by little, everything started to localize. You saw the balkanization of all the Eastern European states. And so I think here in the United States, um, I think that we can't just be anti-authority for the sake of being anti-authority on its own. And this is something that permeates right-wing thought is that so many are anti-Catholic because they are simply just anti-authority and that's their principle. So when they see people uh, with funny little hats on claiming that, you know, I have authority given to me by God, they're going to reject that because they truly believe no human being on this planet can exercise authority over them. So I think that we need to understand the difference between a right authority and a wrong authority and create a solidarity on that foundation. 
It's an excellent point. Excellent point. And what I always push hard on this channel is realestateforlife.org. Get from a very blue state, conservatives, if you live there, to a very red state like I did. I went from California to Mississippi. I admonish parish orphans and retrogrades out there to get from uh, the broad red swath of states from Texas to Florida, anywhere in those states, take your pick. You know, you can, you might like the local climate or local vegetation of any of those, but that's really, that's really where true America inheres and people need to get there first before their blue state governors lock them in, which they're talking about doing. And once they're all here, assuming we can do that, going to realestateforlife.org, use them. They're good people. Uh, then we can talk about what the next step is because the real moral imprimatur, the real moral authority in the United States has always rested with the states. And you said the word balkanization. That's, that's uh, I think, what needs to happen here. But that's, that's the topic for another show and lots of shows I've done in the past. Break it all up and, uh, and, and, and be for God in maybe a smaller iteration, but that's, that's a different show. I genuinely, I, I don't usually do interviews this long, but I appreciate both of you guys time and um, we should stay in touch. I'd like to, I'd like to have you both on the show again, sincerely. Absolutely. Thank, thank you so much for having us on. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, and God bless both of you. Happy uh, second half of Advent. God bless your little one. My wife too is pregnant. How, how many weeks are you? My wife is about Congratulations. 13 weeks pregnant. Yeah, um, do what you want me to say or should? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Up to you. Don't we can tell you all fair after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I was just going to say our babies might be born right around. My, my wife, my wife is 13 weeks with our little our sixth little girl. Can you believe that? One little. That's girl. amazing. Wow. I'm a little was, farther along than that, but um, that's exciting. Congratulations to your family. Yeah. Yeah, you too. You guys are really an amazing uh, young couple. God bless you. Parish orphans and retrogrades out there. Stick with it. We got another reversion story, Miley Yiannopoulos, on Tuesday. Thank you all for tuning in. Long interview now. Everyone stay faithful. Be good to each other. Stay tough. Deus Volt.